0: Section 21 So who the heck is Daniel M. Ingram? I suppose that if I'm going to rant about how most Dharma teachers do not do a good job of clearly stating what they know, what they teach, etc., then I should try to avoid being a complete hypocrite and thus answer some of those questions here. Here's my Western teacher bio, the way I would have it on a retreat center brochure. Daniel is a double Aquarian from North Carolina who prefers to be called Dharma Dan, Dude, or simply Honored Mystic Sir. His favorite movie is Raising Arizona. Just kidding. Let's try that again. Daniel is an extroverted Gen X intellectual. He is known for his pronounced enthusiasm, lip-flapping, grandiosity, eccentricity, and calling people on their stuff and shadow sides regardless of whether or not this is helpful or even accurate. He is an arahat and has a solid mastery of the basic concentration states from the first jahana to nirota samapati, including the pure lanjhanas. He also has a solid knowledge of Buddhist theory and the texts, and because of these three areas of expertise considers himself a qualified teacher. He was also authorized and encouraged to teach by a lineage abbot of the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition. When it comes to insight practices, he has standards so high, exacting, and uncompromising that only those who are dedicated practitioners are likely to find them helpful. On the other hand, he is a firm believer that if people simply practice the basic techniques recommended by the Buddha, they can be very successful and awakened meditators. He is one of the rare teachers who will talk about insight directly and answer nearly any question about Dharma practice without using code, covering things up, or watering things down. Daniel is a diehard Mahasi Sayadaw fan, though he is very happy whenever he sees people trying to master any of the world's great mystical traditions and thus considers himself a pan mystical evangelist. He is also a chronic mapmonger and technique freak because he has had them work very well for him. He does not claim to have any special knowledge of how to live skillfully in the conventional world, but has found that a positive attitude, non-pretentious kindness, and a sense of humor will take you a long way. If you imagine that you want to bust out some hardcore practice, but are in fact just looking for a daddy, shrink, social worker, or someone to help you prop up your self-esteem, Daniel is unlikely at this stage in his development to be the best person to help you meet your needs. He considers himself to be one badass Dharma cowboy and prefers similar company, or at least those who aspire to be so. I dare, no, I double dare, any teacher to be that honest when writing their next bio, not that they are likely to be given enough space to disclose anything resembling this much honest and practical information. A few more things— I crossed the arising and passing away when I was about fifteen and did it again about four more times by my recollection over the next ten years without formal practice, technique, or guidance. I attained to stream entry at the end of the first week of my fourth retreat on January 13, 1996, in Gaya, India, in the Thai Monastery. I also crossed the arising and passing away of second path on that retreat. I attained second path in daily life while working at the National AIDS Hotline with the CDC in July 1996. I was in the break room just hanging out. I attained the third path towards the end of 1996, also in daily life, after a retreat a few weeks before I crossed the arising and passing away of that cycle. I attained to Samapati, see the appendix, one month later but it would take me a more few years to really nail down hard some and the formless realms so that I could access them off retreat. I was an Anagami for almost seven years, going through cycle after cycle of progressive appreciation of the emptiness of ordinary phenomena, with my total count of what felt like full new paths being about twenty-seven. I wrote most of this book during that time, I also earned a two-year Master's of Science in Public Health in Infectious Disease Epidemiology at UNC Chapel Hill and then went on to complete medical school there. Then on April 17, 2003, on a 21-day retreat at the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center between medical school and my residency, I attained to Arahatship. It happened while I was doing walking meditation on that glorious spring morning. I was sick of the cycles of insight and profoundly inspired by the steady and gentle invitation of the teacher, Sayadaw U Pandita Jr., to simply see through the whole thing as he had done. His calm smile seemed to say, You can do it, come on, any day now. Always sit with Arahats if you possibly can, that's my advice anyway. I decided that I would allow no sensation anywhere in the entire wide sense field to go by without it being clearly known as it was during every single second of the day. It was a high standard, but strangely enough can be actually very closely approximated. It was sufficient to do the trick after about a week of doing that some 20 plus hours per day. I remember attaining to a fruition, and a few seconds later I noticed something about the entrance to it, and the reforming of the sense of a perceiver on the back side of it. Then suddenly the knot of perception flipped open. Everything was the same, and yet the perspective on it was completely different. And my vipassana problem, once I had stabilized in that understanding, was solved. I had barely taught in the previous six years, as my own practice has consumed most of the scant-free time I had, but a few days after seeing it I told my teacher I was thinking of teaching again. He shot me an uncharacteristically sharp glance, and said in a forceful and commanding voice, "'Good!' I have learned all sorts of useful and interesting things since then, but seeing through the center point was the essential thing.' Many, many thanks to everyone and everything that made all of this possible, from the people who taught the Buddha to those who carry his knowledge forward today, from the people who cooked in the meditation centers I stayed in, to the usurious credit card companies that loaned me the money to keep going on retreats, and for everything else in this wide world that made it happen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In addition to my successes, I feel very comfortable writing about the many ways that one can screw up on the spiritual path, either because I have done so myself, because one or more of my respected Dharma companions had done so, or most often for both reasons. I can't tell you how many stupid things I thought, said, and did along the way while in desperate pursuit of something that was right there all along and I continue to make countless errors when trying to spread the Dharma and live my life. The only stage, state, or attainment I write about from theory, rather than experience, is Buddhahood. There are a few practical uses for such information. It is potentially useful to disclose that I have made countless errors on the spiritual path so that this may counter the notion that I am coming from some useless holier-than-thou position and also try to counter in others the sense that they are the only ones who make numerous errors on the spiritual path. I hope it was not necessary. As someone wise once said, The life of a Zen master is one continuous mistake, and that goes equally for the rest of us. I feel that the most important positive result that can come from stating, I know that of which I write, is the chance that this might create the sense that extraordinary things may be understood and attained by otherwise ordinary people, such as and including myself and yourself. I've done this stuff while holding down jobs, having relationships, and pursuing graduate studies. I did it on a few weeks or months of retreat time here and there with a lot of daily practice. My total retreat time from beginning to era was about eight months, with the longest sit being 27 days. The point that I'm trying to make is that these techniques and practices are powerful and effective for those who take the time to follow them. If I can convey the sense that this is true by going on and on about, what I have accomplished, then doing so serves a useful function. Another possible positive outcome is the sense that might be created in some people that this is not a dead and theory-based tradition that simply rehashed the semi-mythical glory of long-dead gurus and ancient writings, but a living tradition with validity in our modern times, THE LAST USEFUL POINT THAT MIGHT COME FROM SOMEONE WHO HAS QUITE OBVIOUSLY ACHIEVED NOTHING EVEN CLOSE TO SELF-PERFECTION SAYING, I HAVE STRONG MASTERY OF THE CORE TEACHINGS OF THE BUDDHA, IS THAT IT MIGHT SERVE TO HELP BRING THE WHOLE NOTION OF SPIRITUALITY BACK DOWN TO EARTH. I AM QUITE WILLING TO LOOK RIDICULOUS AND GRANDIOSE IF THERE IS SOME CHANCE OF IT FURTHERING THAT PROCESS, THOUGH I REALIZE THAT IT COULD EASILY BACKFIRE. Consider carefully the differences and similarities between confidence, arrogance, and empowering others to realize that they can do it also. A word to the wise is, Don't believe me or anyone else. Take the time to verify these things for yourself, from your own direct experience. I could easily be fooling myself, you, or both of us, on numerous points, and for all sorts of reasons from innocent to evil. There certainly is a well-developed and ancient tradition of doing so. However, my attainments shouldn't matter so much to you, as the only person's understanding that will really help you is your own. My personal experiences with the psychic powers are not yet as fully developed as the more fundamental areas, but I have enough experience to be able to help all but the most advanced practitioner of them. As to scholarship... I feel that reading widely and really considering the meaning of what one reads and how it might actually be applied is a very good idea, and I have myself read around 150 Dharma books, both traditional and modern. While I have been authorized and encouraged to teach by a formal lineage, this is a mere formality and not a sure sign in anyone of real understanding or attainment, much less teaching ability. Luckily, Realizations are not dependent on conditions such as formal acceptance into a lineage. I have chosen a lucrative career path that has little to do with meditation, and this eliminates my financial dependence on the Dharma and the temptation to water things down for mass consumption or popular appeal, as is so commonly done. I have found that if I repeatedly ask those who start talking with me about Dharma practice the questions, what do you really want and why, and what would you be willing to do to get that, I usually come to the conclusion that they are not really interested in the things I am interested in, such as the things mentioned in this book, and thus I can turn the conversation to other topics and avoid wasting our time. Those few who do share some of my interests are my dear companions in what I call the Dharma Underground, and for them I am extremely grateful. But enough about me. Let me tell you about my book. I think that I have made my influences and humble opinions on a wide variety of other subjects very clear throughout this work. To be truthful, sometimes I have picked up this book and thought, Goodness gracious, what a harsh rant! What a heap of reductionist dogma, false certainty, pretentiousness, and my own neurotic stuff! I pity the poor innocent and pathologically nice, mainstream, ritualistic, disempowered Buddhists fortunate enough to have picked this thing up, simply been kicked in their soft and flabby posteriors by it to little good effect. On other days I have picked it up and thought, Wow! This is really the book that I wished I had read all those years ago when I decided to really go for it. It would have been so extremely helpful to have so many details about high-level practice laid out this clearly, so many myths dispelled, so much honesty about what the path is and isn't. What a joy it is that there are books that convey such enthusiastic and empowering views on these practices. Maybe there will be a few people out there who just needed a little prodding to realize their full potential as great and powerful meditators. Wouldn't it be great if I can find a way to get this book into their hands? I hope that you had something like both reactions, as I think that both points of view have some validity. Two interesting and practical questions for you are, Who are you in direct experiential terms? And, Who is it that knows? Answer these, and you will come to know all of this directly for yourself. The first and last job of anyone who teaches meditation should be to make herself or himself redundant. This book is the best I have been able to come up with to help accomplish this, as I have tried my best to pack it with everything useful that I know. Conclusion and Best Wishes I do hope that people will not settle for becoming lost in the dogma of this work, Buddhism, or any other mystical tradition. I hope that they learn actually to do the practices that lead to freedom and to the deep integration of that freedom into their lives. I hope that they have faith that mastery can be attained. I hope that they will learn to ask good questions that will help them to accomplish this. I hope that the culture of Buddhism and the world in general will become less sectarian instead of more. I hope that practitioners of meditation will use spiritual conceptual frameworks as tools and not worship them as sacred dogma. I hope that the huge amount of magical and fantastic thinking that accompanies spiritual traditions will immediately vanish from this planet forever. I hope that those on the path will learn to talk with each other in ways that are conducive to clear practice. I hope that any controversial points made in this book will produce skillful debate and real inquiry rather than contraction into fear and dogma. I hope that people will work toward actual mastery of the path so that they will no longer need writing such as this one. I hope that people will not spend their lives lost in content, but will also delve deeply into the liberating truth of the three characteristics— I hope that the level of expectation about what is possible will be raised in a way that is helpful, and that any jealousy or frustration that results from this will be skillfully channeled into precise practice and the joy that it can be done. May all of this be for the benefit of all beings. Should you realize that you wish to awaken, know that it is within your capabilities to do so. Appendix The cessation of perception and feeling Nairota Samapati in Pali, is the highest of the temporary attainments. As is traditional in the commentaries, I have included it last. It is discussed in a number of places, including Sutta 44, the shorter series of questions and answers, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, in a talk given by a female arahat named Medina, and the path to deliverance by Nayana Taloka, which draws from that fine text. This attainment can neither be said to be a state or not a state, nor can it be said to be purely a concentration attainment or an insight attainment, as it lacks a basis for analysis, meaning that there is no experience that can be analyzed. The word nairota, meaning cessation, is also sometimes used without the qualifier samapati to refer to fruition so be careful to keep your terms straight when reading the old texts or speaking with others about these things. I always mean the cessation of perception and feeling when I use the word Nairoda, but others may not. It is said that Nairoda can only be attained by Anagamis and Arahats, those of the third and fourth path, who have some mastery of the formless realms. However, as Bill Hamilton once said, if you are an Agami or Arahat, you are bound to run into Nayarodha Samapati eventually. There are some reasons to question whether or not those of the lower stages of awakening might be able to attain this, or how the ability to attain this relates to the number of stages of awakening. However, this is not a subject that I am in a mood to pursue in detail, as I have learned the hard way that such questions do not help in the end. If you manage to attain Nayarodha, I wouldn't fixate on the idea that you have attained at least third path. That said, a few months of careful work and focused intent, I was able to attain it after completing my third cycle of insight. One attains niroda by focusing insight practices and concentration practices in a fairly gentle way that is much less focused and precise than one would do if one wanted to attain fruition. I find it easiest to attain when reclining. But the first time I attained it, I was sitting. There is nothing that can really be said about this attainment, except for mentioning things about the entrance, exit, and the consequences of the attainment. One rises through the Samitha Jhanas in a very low-key fashion with some weak awareness of their true nature, the three characteristics, enters the eighth jahana, neither perception nor yet non-perception, and then emerges from that state. Sometime shortly thereafter, and without warning or a very recent premeditation, one may suddenly enter the cessation of perception and feeling. It must be noted that previous interest in attaining this during the preceding days or weeks tends to increase the chances of this attainment showing up. As one gets better at attaining this, one can slip in the inclination, resolution, to attain it after emerging from the eighth jahana, and then forget about it before dropping in. As my dear old meditation friend Kenneth so rightly points out, between the Eighth Jahana and the Nairoda, there are a number of states very worth mentioning, though the standard texts strangely don't for reasons I can't fathom. We have come to call them Pure Land One and Pure Land Two, as this seemed as good a thing to call them as anything, thus making a total of ten Jahanas and Nairoda. Both have, as their overwhelming quality, the feeling of deep gratitude in the purest and most profound sense, with Pure Land 2 being a deepening and strengthening of Pure Land 1, though it is also a bit wider and more diffuse. These are remarkably healing, complete, pervasive, satisfying, and heartfelt states, and the word pure applies quite nicely. Early on, I barely noticed them and would jump as fast as I could from the Eighth Jahana to Naroda. Now I know better and take the time to enjoy them. They write gratitude, beauty, clarity, and contentment onto the mind. There is also a state somewhere in that territory that seems basically like pure presence, like being a super-pervading watcher, with the quality of perceiving or awareness of itself being the dominant quality— this has a very different quality from the sixth jahana, boundless consciousness, and in my opinion is far superior, more fundamental, and could be argued as the highest of the states that involve experience. However, the fact that states are so clear to me continue to show up that they were never described in the old text so far as I can tell brings up another important point. The territory out there past the fourth jahana, and particularly the eighth jahana, is very malleable. Kenneth and I speculated that the limits to the states attainable out there are limited by our imagination and concentration skill only, and I have imagined staging a friendly contest among high-level practitioners to dream up states that are even better than the ones I know so that we can play around with attaining them and seeing if there are any limits to the thing. The large list of all the exotic heaven realms found in the old texts adds credence to this belief. I realize this may seem like a contradiction to earlier statements I have made about being able to master concentration practices absolutely. It is. Back to describing Nairoda. The texts rightly say that on the entrance to Nairoda, verbal formations cease first, then bodily sensations then the whole of mental functioning ceases when the attainment is finally entered. This is traditionally explained as correlating to the first jahana, fourth jahana, and then the entrance to Naroda, respectively. However, it may be noticed that in the three moments before cessation of perception sets in, during the complete power-failure-like entrance, the verbal formations bodily formations and mental formations cease in that order also in three consecutive and definable moments with the whole thing taking about a third of a second thus the text may have a double meaning or were misinterpreted by scholars who had never attained naroda samapati i say this because it is still typical for many bodily and verbal formations to arise between the eighth jahana and the entrance to naroda and thus the traditional interpretation does not hold up. The texts also say that this attainment may last seven days or even longer, but I don't personally know of anyone who has admitted to having this happen. That doesn't mean it can't happen, but it would probably require a long and sustained retreat beforehand. The duration of such attainments will be related directly to one's concentration abilities— and these are very dependent upon local practice conditions and the amount that they have recently been exercised. Unlike fruition, one exits this attainment in the reverse of the way one came in, with mental formations arising first, quickly followed by physical and then verbal formations in the characteristic analog way of the entrance and with the same timing. After leaving this attainment, the mind tends to be deeply peaceful and very clear and one's body tends to be very relaxed. The longer the attainment lasted, the stronger and more durable this effect will be. Thus, I would not recommend attaining this immediately before entering into situations that require high-speed decisions or actions. The texts say that one inclines to solitude or quiet after attaining this state, and in general I agree. I mention this attainment because it is one more of those things that is found today, but has often been relegated to the realm of myth and legend, or has been forgotten entirely. It is not that Narod is necessary, but it is definitely a good and useful thing to be able to attain. In fact, I have not yet spoken with anyone who had attained it who didn't consider it among the absolute king-daddy of meditation attainments other than arahatship, as the depth of its afterglow never fails to impress and amaze. Hopefully, mentioning it will raise the standard to which people feel they can reasonably aspire, which is basically the whole goal of this book. One more little morsel for you brave adventurers. I have noticed that the easiest time to attain Nairoda is usually a few weeks after attaining a path, when the Vipassana Jahana aspect of the progress of insight is becoming clear and a nice degree of mastery has been attained in that review phase. However, it has this nice, nasty habit of helping to precipitate a new progress cycle, as the level of clarity gained in its wake is impressive. Thus, one may go from the best highs of a review phase and Naroda's glorious afterglow to the third jnana, A&P, and Dark night quickly. In fact, this seems to be a very natural part of the many cycles of Anagamis who also know the jhanas and Formless Realms. Best of luck and practice well. Daniel End of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha An Unusually Hard Dharma Book Written by the Arahat, Daniel M. Ingram, M.D. Narrated by Kirk Ziegler voiceovers by kirk.com copyright 2008 daniel m ingram